No Stupid Answers, Episode 17, the show with the most qualified people discussing and answering the most interesting questions from Reddit. I'm Colton Wallace, joined by Queen of Podcasting, Loria Sava. Heyo! PhD, Dr. Jessica Uzarians. Hey there! And our resident linguist, Josh Lieto. Hey, guys. Hey, Josh. What's up? Are you clicking a pen? Oh my god. Give me that pen. I no, it's my pen. Oh my god. He's being so mean. <laughs> He's the background like Gestapo over here. Background noise Gestapo. Can I you say that? You cannot click that pen. You cannot yell at me for clicking this pen. It's human nature. Click it. <laughs> no. It's human nature to click a pen. It's an instinct. So I've got an interesting question to pose to you guys. Hmm. And this is this was posted on Reddit by user several duty five six three two, and the question was, when did it become so common that these billion dollar corporations keep asking to round up for them? Do they report these donations as profits or actually donate one hundred percent of the roundups? So, do you guys uh, round up for charity? I always do. You do. I do always round up for charity when the option is readily provided. So did you ever have a thought, like, did you think that money just goes all to charity and the corporation doesn't get tax breaks for it? I just felt like if this is how I can help, then I guess this is where the universe has put me at this moment. And I will add 49 cents to my bill. Okay. Does the whole 49 cents go to the people? Do we have a... It does. It does. Okay. In those cases, it does. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. But did you guys ever have any thoughts about like oh i bet this is just a corporation trying to take advantage of the situation in some way oh absolutely that's what i always thought yeah i'm a cynic i well i didn't assume that they were you know taking a cut of the um, proceeds per se but i did assume that they were taking a tax break on it yeah and so instead of me getting a tax break for donating some change it's, you know, like some grocery store chain that doesn't deserve a tax break donating <laughs> it. So, like, um, that was my thought. And then sometimes I don't like the charity, especially if it's religious-based. No, thank you. Before we get into the basis of the charity itself, so I, I kind of had the same thought that the corporations were, like, using this as a tax break. And I kind of used that as, I'm like, they're probably using this as a tax break. I, I shouldn't give them this money because then the corporations just make getting a tax break off of my donation. Yeah. And I, th- I feel like I've heard that from other people before, too. Mm-hmm. But this question inspired me to look up some information on this. And from the uh, Tax Policy Center organization, mm. I found out this is not at all true. In cases where there's charities where you're rounding up to give money, that's like, by law, it's like a cooperative thing between the charity and the business. So... In that case, your donation is going to the charity and the business cannot claim a tax break for that donation. Oh, okay. Now, businesses claim a bunch of tax breaks for donations, but that donation where you're rounding up, they cannot, by law, in the United States, this is how it works, they cannot, by law, claim that as a tax break. Oh, okay. So, you don't have to feel like you are giving a corporation tax breaks if you're rounding up. Yeah, I never thought of it as a tax break. What I do think comes from it is brand equity and marketing as far as thinking, oh, look at them. They are such great corporation. Really, they're kind of like a person. They're great. They're giving to charity. (laughs) 
Um, what a good guy. What a good person. And it, no, it's a corporation. And I guarantee you that there is some reasons behind it. But I, I do also think that there's a lot of good that corporations are trying to do, at least the people behind those types of campaigns. Mm. So I do think that the people that are working on those projects or campaigns are giving it their all and they're putting a lot of good intention behind it. However, since it's going up to an entity such as a corporation, there's a, usually a reason why they're making that play. And so I think it's more for the, the branding and the kind of reputation of the company mm-hmm. rather than actual tax breaks. Right, right. Josh, so you said you always donate when given the opportunity. Does it matter to you what the um, charity is? Is this just like something that you just do um, because you feel compelled to? Like, uh, is it something that like you're like, oh, I'm in line. Everybody's listening to me. Or is it like truly just like you just have a generous spirit? Like, or is it a combo? Like, what what are you thinking? Like when you're making that like choice? What I'm thinking is. If I see a picture of a sick child, take my money. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. So I think, yes, it's fine. Uh, I can I can round up for my... Definitely sometimes at these checkouts, when I see the name of the charity, I'm like, I don't trust whatever this name is, and then I do not donate. Yeah, I guess that me and Colton are just meaner yeah. and um, worse, more cynical people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's been so many chair like not that there's not a ton of great charities. There's also some charities that have been corrupt over the time. I mean, I'm sure the percentage is way higher to the ones that are not. So I'm not discouraging donating to charity in general. But usually in these situations, it's just here's a charity in your face. Make a decision in five seconds if you're donating to this charity. Right. Well, there's some like science also behind this. I know Bank of America, they um, had this huge campaign. I don't know if you remember it. I don't think they still do it, but it was called like Keep the Change, where it would round up. So you would basically pay for something and then it would round up to the nearest dollar. And that money, that change that was in the void basically would go into like a savings account for you. And I actually knew one of the people who helped put that together. And there are two big observations that they had around. They went out and did like kind of ethnographic research and they were kind of observing people. And one was when people would come home after a day or whatever, they would first empty their pockets. And a lot of times the change would go into a dish or or a Mm -hmm. drawer or something and just kind of be forgotten. So there was kind of that leftover change. And then the other piece was observing moms at the checkout counter at a grocery store. This is back when we had checks. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of you would see like a, a mom rolling down the grocery aisle with like two kids hanging off all of the groceries um, in the cart And what they noticed were they were writing out their check to the nearest dollar because it was easier than calculating the change at the end of the month when you had to balance your checkbook. And it was just easier at the moment because you had so much chaos going around you, you're just kind of writing it to the nearest dollar. And so that's some of the things like the that triggered for that campaign to happen. And I think that type of psychology is also played into this of like, oh, it's just 49 cents. I'm not, I'm, that's fine. I can part with it. Anyway, I think there is something to do with the fact that we don't really treat change as like 
a really strong monetary number. And so people are willing to part with it. I, I guess the one other thing that kind of bothers me about the uh, checkout roundups is the places I feel like I mostly see it at are fast food places and grocery stores. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like those are like essential things like eating and going to the grocery store. And those are the places that get targeted for you to give charitable donations. What about more luxury purchases? Like, why is there not rounding up there? And not that everyone that goes to the grocery store would be low income, but but the targeting those places seems like. Well, I wonder if those are different charitable techniques, though, because you go to a place and you're saying, OK, can you donate 49 cents? But then you go to these people who are very, very rich you're not asking them to donate 49 cents. You're asking them mm-hmm. to donate $10,000. Uh, right. And unfortunately, we could get into a whole discussion around how horrible the fundraising elements are for nonprofits because they constantly <laughs> have to go to white rich people to donate for mm-hmm. nonprofits. And there mm-hmm. is a fundamental problem with that. But that is really, it, I think it's just different techniques for different types of and amounts of money that you're looking for. You know, after learning that it is not true that corporations can claim your donation as part of their tax um, burden, that makes me much more inclined to be more giving. Me too. Because I was so cynical before. I'm like, these corporations are trying to... (laughs) Yeah. I never (laughs) trust companies anyways. So like, I don't trust they're going to do the right thing. And, you know, I have a distrust of like the charities doing the right thing and all that. But like, those are hangups that I could just get over, (laughs) you know, in the spirit of giving. Yeah, it's super interesting, though. Like, I mean, you have to think about the fact that the company, yes, is is participating in this um, charity element. But there's people behind that. And like I've mm-hmm. I've worked with the charity arm of an organization. And when you meet those people, you have no doubts that they're doing the right things with mm. what they can do. But it is interesting because it's all encapsulated by a certain company. And if you trust that company, it's one thing. If you don't trust that company, it's another thing. And uh, it's just it is really it's a very interesting, deep, dark world of of charity giving. Um, I mean, <laughs> plunge into the deep, dark world of charity. <laughs> <laughs> this is very similar to our tipping conversation that we had many moons ago, where you're asked to like tip, and you kind of feel obligated to. I think it's a similar experience when you're asked to give. Yeah, Lori, I kind of agree with you. It kind of like brings up the same feelings as tipping in an inappropriate situation. You know, I I think that I felt similar things where I've been asked to donate to like a a religious charity um, in a packed grocery store line. I'm like, fuck no. (laughs) And I feel like a monster. It's not that I don't want to give to a charity. Jessica doesn't say fuck no to them in real life. I I would never. She'd be like, no, thank you. I know I'd be nice about it, but I'd be thinking about it. And then I go on a rant about how they're using my like kind donation as a tax break. That's after we leave the store. Yeah. That's not not in line. To Colton. Yeah. And I'd just be like, you know, like outraged by it. I'd be like (laughs) wringing my hands. It really jumbles my bumbles, as they say. But (laughs) yeah, I feel like it's a similar feeling. I think that's a really good parallel, Lori. 
All right. Uh, thanks for the posting the question, Several Duty 5632 um, Our next question, posted on Reddit by user Spicy Lizard Inc. And the question is, what is the snake oil of today? So if you're not familiar with what snake oil the term is, um, it's a substance with no real medicinal value sold as a remedy for all diseases. And um, looking up some information about the past history of this word, um, a great article from NPR's Code Switch. So this was an oil used in China for centuries made from the Chinese water snake, the oil from the Chinese water snake. Mm, okay. And that was rich in omega-3 acids, which help reduce inflammation right and workers would rub this oil on their joints and so originally this was an actual useful substance okay later uh clark stanley aka the rattlesnake king (laughs) (laughs) was selling a false snake oil that actually contained no snake oil at all and um he He tarnished the name of snake oil with with his bogus non-snake so it was a real it was a legit reptilian oil before this guy came along yes wow with actual Um, with some kind of properties that could actually do something and then this man comes along with counterfeit snake oil wow the audacity and uh, it supposedly this is when that uh fraud snake oil association started kind of coming together um so with that snake oils of today do you guys have any snake oils that you know of today at the top of your head I was thinking ho- homeopathy. Yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, so homeopathy is, um, I guess the the core idea is that you take um, a you know a medicine that actually does have medicinal properties, and then you dilute it, and then you delete dilute it so much, like a thousand times, um, that there's physically really none of that original chemical or compound or like active ingredient in the the now diluted solution that you've created but the idea of homeopathy is that you've imprinted like the essence of that cure into the water um and it's just as potent if not more and there's like the more you dilute it it's supposed to be more potent it's absolutely doesn't make any sense from a scientific basis um but yeah um that's the core of homeopathy is that it's water, literally. Interesting. So I thought homeopathy also included other like natural remedies. Is that not is that a misnomer of the actual term? I am not a homeopathy expert, but there it usually does start with something that might have medicinal properties. Oh, because I thought there was some homeopathy that could aid in things, but it was just like natural things that and they're right. useful for something. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't, to be a homeopathic medication, uh-huh. it can also have like natural ingredients added, added to oh, it. Oh, okay. But homeopathy's core is you take one thing that's like a pure, like say it's an extract of like a plant, uh-huh. you know, and then you take that and you have one teaspoon of it. And then you add that one teaspoon into a swimming pool. And then the swimming pool is now medicine. <laughs> so like that is like the idea. I see behind like you know the the practice of homeopathy and i'm sure this may anger people that you know swear by homeopathic remedies um but essentially what you're doing is you're taking something and diluting it beyond the point of where it could be truly effective from at least a chemical standpoint so something that immediately came to my mind with the thought of snake oil is uh something called rick simpson oil 
and Rick Simpson oil is made from the flowers of cannabis. And if you look online, people claim that this will cure cancer and there's not any. But and everything else. Yeah, right. So what makes it snake oil is that it's a panacea of like everything, right? Well, yeah, but but it's propagated as, oh, it will cure all cancers. It's like, okay. But it also, yeah, it'll, but it'll also cure other things too besides cancer. Yeah. Right. But there's not any evidence of this. And, um, well, there's anecdotal evidence, right? And you can, this is where, this is where you run into problems with this kind of stuff is because there are some studies on different things from cannabis that have shown encouraging signs in certain things, but that doesn't mean that. It just, oh, it cures all cancers. Like, that's not how that works. Right, right. So so I think that gets muddled up because you're like, oh, but this one study showed this one positive effect. It's like, great. Yeah, yeah. But- and it, the thing is, is that I think cancer research in particular can be a place where you find snake oil popping up mm-hmm. in different forms. Like, RSO oil is debatable. Like, there are compounds in that that are derived from the cannabis plant that are you know, polyphenols and flavonones and all the different things. Like there's tons of different chemicals in there. They could have an effect, right? So there's like actually things that are, you know, chemically bioactive Mm -hmm. in there, but we don't have enough evidence of it. It's it's like the backwards of the cigarette company's argument against like lung cancer. They're like, well, you can't say it directly was. (laughs) So this is like the backwards of that where they're like, (laughs) you could say it attributed. Well, I just think that like... The point I was trying to make is that like cancer treatment in general, you see snake oils Mm -hmm. popping up so frequently because people that have cancer are desperate. Yeah, they're desperate for cures. And like modern medicine hasn't caught up with like, you know, biology. We can't target, um, you know, all different types of cancers and we can't cure them Um, the best we have um, in a lot of cases like you know, it can be arguably worse. <laughs> the treatment is worse than the disease, like some people right. will say. Um, and so, like, when you're in that situation and you're desperate to live, like, wouldn't you try anything? Yeah. You know, I, I totally get why people would go to that, you know. Well, that, the, the but, yeah, yeah. But, like, from somebody who kind of understands a little bit more, it's like, it's just sad to see because you know it doesn't work. What really upsets me about these snake oils, especially in in cancer uh, treatment, is that the people that are like peddling these treatments, sometimes they believe in it, but like sometimes they know it's bullshit and they're just leading people to their death. In some cases, you know, people say, oh, well, where's the harm if it gives people hope? Well, the harm is, is that some people might choose not to take you know, tried and true medications that could extend their lives um, in, you know, lieu of these other natural treatments or whatever it may be, whatever snake oil they're getting. And that's not going to help them, but they choose that because it it's not going to make them sick over chemotherapy, you know, and it actually ends up killing them. And by the time they realize that the snake oil is not actually helping them, their cancer is too far progressed. And that is the case those types of cases are the really like sad things to me. And so when I think about like snake oil, like that's where the tragedy is, is that somebody is making money off of these other people's suffering and it's just inconscionable. So one defense of Rick Simpson 
it is not something he sells a version of for profit. So right. he's not like selling this product to make profit. So I think it's something he believes in, but nonetheless. I feel like Rick Simpson oil specifically is not the best example of snake oil. I feel like it still exhibits the the same problems that other snake oil does. I think you're right about that. And like, I'm just more so playing devil's advocate yeah. in this instance. I, I don't think people should take this instead of going to their doctor. The other uh, snake oil that immediately came to mind for me is supplements sold by media personalities. And I'm not talking about someone as a spokesperson for a product, but where someone uses their like show as a platform to sell their questionable products. Their elk ext- extracts mm. and their vitality. Um, you yeah, know. and the bone. The broth. prime example. The prime example I can think of is um, popular in the news right now. Alex Jones. So Alex Jones has a show where he constantly is selling you his own products, and the products are all like wellness products. If you look at the website, like Living Defense Plus, Survival Shield X Three. Like it's they're just little tinctures or vitamins that are sold at double to triple times what these same vitamins will be sold for anywhere else. Um, You could get into an argument about the effectiveness of different vitamins, but we won't do that here. (laughs) But this is the kind of thing where he's selling all these products as you need these to fix yourself or diet force performance, weight loss and energy support. And and the problem is. He has this audience or or the media personality who has a show, they have this audience and they are developing like a relationship with this audience. And then they're like, once they get you in, then they're like, oh, here's my product that you need. You know, you can trust me because I've been talking to you on the show. And then all of a sudden it becomes an advertisement right in the middle. So I feel like modern snake oil is that advertisement built into mm-hmm. informational content. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. any kind of content where you then build the ad in and almost make it seem like you can trust me because, you know, I you watch the show that I do. Right. And now here's my product. You should buy this. You know, another example of that is mm-hmm. uh, Goop. Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah. Yes. I don't know what you called the man earlier, Mr. Snake Oil. The Rattlesnake King. Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> might be the Rattlesnake Queen. Um, oh, you're so right. A lot of her products or Goop's products have pseudoscience behind them. So they don't actually have any mm-hmm. any actual research around it. And diving deep into it, it's pretty messed up. They have um, a lot of things for women, which is very interesting to me because it's taken a long time for women to get actually represented in medical studies and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. Same with people of color. And so I'm curious if the if her pushing some of these kind of like health remedies for women and kind of reproductive related needs for health and stuff like that, if she's like building off of a a need there, but mm-hmm. the work that she's putting out, the content that they're putting out is not actual science-based um, health content. So right. there's things that like she created, what are these Jade vaginal eggs, <laughs> uh, which were marketed Yoni by egg. Goop for weightlifting purposes. Well, not, and not everybody wants to consume not everybody wants to consume uh, science-based health or fitness 
media or stuff, right? That's okay. True. Yeah, but when it's it's advertised as it's going to help you do this, but there is no data that actually shows it does, it's false advertisement. Right. They're making claims and preying on somebody's lack of knowledge. Or selling a lifestyle, like, you know, and so it becomes like a, you know, part of a package, you know, and so um, to be, you know, a thin, affluent you know, a successful woman, you need a yoni egg, <laughs> you know, or, or like right. this it, is this like fantasy um, and lifestyle more than it is like a beneficial health item. Yeah, I mean, and it goes as far as like the state of California sued Goop um, for certain settlements. But I mean, it basically there is just a lot of the fact and it, it's really sued based on truth of truth in advertising. I think that's really where it's coming down to of like when you yeah. say it's supposed to do one thing and it doesn't actually do that and you're lying to um, like to sell more. That to me is snake oil of today. Well, snake oil is just anything that is a bunch of bunk. Yes. So it so it's. Historically, you can see the origins of it being a cure-all because, I mean, you know, if you wanted to just sell anything, like, what can you sell to people? And I think that there's other people that are guilty of this besides, like, Gwyneth Paltrow, like, some of the, you know, doctors come to mind, you know, the doctors with show, Dr. Oz. Dr. Oz. Dr. Uh, yeah. Phil. I, I, does Dr. Phil sell stuff? He kind of does. He sells emotional snake oil. <laughs> <laughs> And Dr. Mercola, have you guys ever heard of that guy? I have not. He, he's um, big in the natural health scene, so like lots of supplements like melatonin. And I think he was sued for some reason. He was selling like tanning beds and then saying that they don't give you skin cancer because they're his special tanning bed. Um, and they're totally fine, but they were literally tanning beds. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's messed up. <laughs> give yourself a healthy glow and oh my bump up your vitamin D. I have a question. Would Elizabeth Holmes, for those who don't know who this is, she was the one who um, basically she's an entrepreneur. She uh, had a former biotechnology company that was supposed to revolutionize blood testing um, and, and be able to like basically tell you everything with a finger prick. Is that considered snake oil? <laughs> yeah, because she sold you something that nobody could do it with this efficiency or like amount of blood required. And then she's selling them all this thing like, yeah, we can do all this. So it was this amazing thing that could solve all these problems. And it was never real. Yeah. I'd yeah. say 100% that's snake oil, in my opinion. I think it has the feeling of snake oil because it's like for sure fraudulent, but it's not necessarily a thing consumers would be buying. Well, maybe it would be actually. Well, I, I think that's the dimension that's maybe lost there because she was exposed, right? right? Pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Whereas I think like a, for me, and maybe this is just, this is just me, but my image of like a snake oil salesman is a person who basically gets away with it. But yeah, like who yeah. is like out there just peddling this. And especially essentially like the idea of like Colton was talking about, like preying on people's ignorance. Theranos got away with it for a while. They had because she had a bunch of funding. Fifteen years. I mean, that's a lot of time. The snake oil must flow. <laughs> I 
I feel like she she really, I mean, it says that by the end of 2010, she had more than $92 million in venture capital. So, like, she was in the wow. heyday for a while, raising yeah, a lot of money yeah. um, and totally tricking people and, like, had nothing to show for it. And luckily she got caught, but, like, in her heyday, she would be the snake oil salesman. All right. Well, uh, be skeptical. Um, yeah. Thanks I agree. for your question, Spicy Lizard Inc. Our next question, posted on Reddit by user Clean Life Clean Living. And the question is It's 2022. Why am I seeing so many fucking mullets? I mainly see it from dudes at my local gym, but I really don't get the appeal. I don't know if I've seen more mullets. I love this fashion question. Absolutely. I have seen so many more mullets out, out and about, and I've pointed it out to Lori unironically. <laughs> what like what is what what is actually happening there yeah i feel like this is like a you see it in like scenes mm. i was thinking like target well i start i started the trend i had a i had a mullet in what second grade <laughs> what my mom not. cut my hair not very well <laughs> and i definitely had a mullet josh in opposition to you from uh menshaircuts.com why the modern mullet should be your next haircut. <laughs> yeah. It's what men- makes it modern? Um, Cole's now looking at mullets Some right of now. these don't look like mullets. No, that's not a that mullet. This isn't a mullet. No. Like, you're, you're seeing... Oh, that's a mullet. You're seeing, like, full-on mullets, Josh? Um, I think I've seen a lot of haircuts where, uh, looking at it from one angle, you don't quite fully realize that it is a mullet, but then when the person begins to turn the head, it just more and more becomes a clear that it that is actually a mullet is a mm-hmm. mullet just a bad undercut no no it's long in the back and short in the front right so it's like you have like the top of your the front and the top of your hair is short and then it gets like longer as it goes towards the back and so like that is that's uh, indicative of a mullet and many of these people it almost looks like they just looked straight at themselves in the mirror and cut <laughs> the hair that they could see and then just <laughs> left it go <laughs> But one other thing, did you know there's a annual national USA mullet championship that began in that 2020? Is, that's pretty good. I'm surprised it didn't begin earlier than that. Yeah. I, this is crazy. I would have thought like David Spade and Mike Myers would have founded that or something. Right. Because right, it's like yeah, he just shows Joe, up in Dirt Joe Dirt attire. Yeah. yeah. There's kids levels, teen levels, men. There's also femulet. Fem, yeah, that would be it. Fe- femulet. 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 Guys, I'm looking at a list of celebrities with 30 different mullet styles, and you can make a mullet look like whatever you want. <laughs> I don't even know what it. I don't even know I, what I'm describing anymore. Well, I will descri- share this link because I don't understand. Some of these haircuts are great. Some of them are. Mullety. I mean, so yeah, yeah. Like, I think it's just you have like short hair on the top and long in the back. Like, There's one called a shullet. <laughs> okay, but like, the, it, I think you could like do it to like varying degrees. I don't know. Yeah, not... I think that there is just like a wide no, variety. I've determined the mullet is more of a hair genre than a hair specific hairstyle. And like the pictures that you're looking at now, like it, they have like shaggy pieces. Is that what like a shell it is where it's like a shag and a mullet together? I think that's what the combo they're going for there where you have Mm. like these 
highly texturized pixie-ish cuts in the front or like random pieciness to the haircut. According to the mulletchamp.com, which is the championship <laughs> for mullets, it has a story about the mullet. And it says that even Homer described a haircut that sounds eerily familiar in the Iliad, which was their forelocks <laughs> cropped, their hair grown long at the backs. Oh, I thought you meant Homer Simpson. No. <laughs> and I imagine that, yeah, and did they did they do an episode where Homer had an actual mullet? Probably. And my answer to that is the Simpsons did it before. <laughs> Guys, I feel like what I'm hearing tonight is that every haircut can be a mullet. <laughs> yeah, there's a mullet version of your haircut out there. Or maybe a my for haircut per- is a version of a mullet. Oh my yeah, God. A mullet for every yeah. person. Okay, so the answer to this question is that no, like you were not crazy. Like there are the a lot. The mullets of, were there all along. The mullets were there all along, but <laughs> now we have Instagram. Right to see the mullets. <laughs> <laughs> um, so end of the story, though. Probably, if you're thinking about like an extreme mullet, give Joe Dirt a watch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and try to like have the straggliest hair that you can imagine. I'm gonna go for the Kentucky waterfall mullet. That sounds like a good mullet. There's some really great ones out here. (laughs) All right. We'll post some links to the best uh, mullets in the show notes. Uh, Thanks for the question. Clean life, clean living. And we'll be back after this short break. Welcome back to the podcast. Our next question comes in from user softbeauty2019. The question reads, lunch theft. Can anyone help me understand the concept of lunch theft in the workplace? The user goes on to write, I personally have never grasped the concept of why the theft of lunch is so prominent in the workplace. I recently saw a TikTok of a woman screaming because her lunch was stolen and it had her name on it. Why anyone would want another person's food is confusing to me. If you have a stolen lunch, can you lay to rest the mystery and explain the reasons behind it? And to answer this question, I'm going to turn it over to Lori. Lori, have you ever had a lunch stolen? I haven't had a lunch stolen. Granted, I am very bad at bringing my lunch to work. Um, But I also have never stolen a lunch. That is just I agree with the user, like very bizarre. Um, But actually two weeks ago, a lot of people at my office have uh, been starting to go into like the actual physical office. And uh, one of the girls that I was talking to, she was um, came on our meeting, we were chatting and she looked kind of upset. And I was like, we're all like, what's going on? She's like, it's been a day. I brought two empanadas to work and somebody ate one of them and I'm not happy about it. And I was just like thinking through in my head, why would somebody take somebody's pre-packed food that they brought from home after a two-year pandemic and eat it on their own when the office, my office very luckily, um, has snacks, has drinks, and convenient restaurants all around. I don't understand the concept behind why you'd steal somebody else's food. 
also taking one of the two empanadas like, right what's what's the reasoning they're like well Psycho. i don't want to steal all of it and i'll leave them some too i think it's a power thing they're like i'm gonna take just one of these <laughs> it's you so know. bizarre i'm gonna let you know i was here right <laughs> i just I, don't find it appetizing at all it's like a violation like if your lunch gets messed with or your food gets messed with in this type of way or if somebody like eats it or steals it it feels violating in a way you expect your food to be safe and unadulterated and then like if somebody eats half of it it's just like what's your mouth has just been on this like what who are you like why would you do this this isn't like a culture thing this this would be wrong anywhere i think yeah like yeah. just stealing somebody else's food from a communal fridge at a workplace i've never seen it happen but there's places offices i've worked at where there's like signs yeah. about not stealing food that's not yours and i always think who is who is doing this yeah it's so weird. So we did actually have a lunch dealer on our floor. So like <laughs> when I was in uh, working in a lab, like we shared refrigerator space with multiple labs and we often times had leftovers and uh, somebody from my lab caught somebody from another lab, like eating some of the food <laughs> and, you know, they like basically didn't have an answer for what they were doing and just kind of scurried away. I don't know what the motivation was. When you're a grad student, sometimes finances are tight. Maybe they didn't have the ability to buy lunch or like plan for it. And it's sometimes it can be difficult if you're stuck at work constantly and you can't actually leave. If you're starving, obviously anybody is going to want to help you out and like give you the lunch. And so maybe in situations like this, pride takes over and people don't want to admit that they're right. struggling with like food insecurity. And so they'll take somebody's lunch and it's like an a shameful act but they do it anyways right because they have to yeah in food insecurity that would make sense as an idea if you're saying in like an elementary or middle school where right. kids were stealing other or kids grad lunch. school i guess in the scenarios i've been in where the offices i'm working in i i don't feel like there's probably a lot of people working there that would be food insecure but You'd make that I, I assumption, guess I don't know. right? You'd yeah, hope not. I, but... I, so I wouldn't. I guess I wouldn't think of that as being a potential reason in the places I've seen these signs before. But I, I could be wrong. I could be reading that wrong. I think that some people will take people's lunch. Obviously, I've never taken somebody's lunch, but like I think I could imagine other people doing it as like a malicious thing. You know, oh, I don't like this person. Like, <laughs> throwing their lunch in the trash. Oh my gosh. We're making the assumption that the lunch is eaten. Right. But we don't know that. Or what if it's by accident? What if the empanadas were in the bag and yeah. like they moved the bag and one fell out and it was a Seinfeld moment where they're like, fuck, <laughs> like this empanada is now like kicked underneath the refrigerator. And yeah, it's I could like, see some cases like that. Speaking of an error. So I take yogurts and put them in the fridge at work and um, I put CW, my initials Colton Wallace, on my yogurt. Not because I'm worried somebody else will take them. I'm worried I will forget. Oh, that yeah. my yogurt's in the fridge and I have this fear that I would go and take somebody else's <laughs> yogurt because I would think like, oh, I put this yogurt in here, right? And I grab it and it wasn't mine. So literally I put my initials on my yogurts because I'm afraid I will forget Yeah. or I'll like grab the wrong yogurt because I'm afraid of taking somebody else's thing. Kind of the opposite end of that. Yeah, this CNBC article, granted, it's from 2018, so I don't think our office standards are the same as yeah. before the pandemic. But uh, it says that 
18% of workers say they've eaten somebody else's lunch out of the office fridge. What? What? It's what? like um it's like one in five workers admit to doing it. <laughs> what? And, what? And, um and there it does go into like well why <laughs> um and this is based on like a 2017 survey from American Express um and they polled like 1000 employees um but and and there's a giant quote that says people don't forget it and you see these people every day so obviously if you are eating somebody's lunch you're definitely hurting them deeply um but there are some things that they said like i think close to what you were just talking about um Jessica around cleaning out the fridge like some people mm-hmm. might think it's not actually good to eat or it's been in there for a long time so they'll clean out the fridge and that might have something but if one out of five people or 18% are actually admitting to eating somebody's lunch like that, I just don't, I, I, I want can't. to meet somebody. If anybody out there has eaten somebody else's lunch, I would love to hear why. Yeah. It just please, would be so fascinating. Yeah. Please email us. I, I, I can't believe it's so high. Yeah. yeah. If there was one more person here, we'd have to get down to the bottom of which one. (laughs) (laughs) Who is it? (laughs) I bet it would be Josh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, just throw me under the bus. I mean, I don't see what's so crazy about just eating food that's going to go bad anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And there we have it. If 18% of people were taking lunches, that means people were very deeply harmed. I don't think so. I mean, I think there were, I think that there's a lot of food that's just left behind and more food probably ends up in the trash than food that is stolen. Yeah. I feel like that person, if you need, if you, I feel like if I went to the fridge and saw somebody ate one of my empanadas, I would say, well, I guess you really needed it, buddy. (laughs) Um, I was talking about this with a friend recently um this question actually and my friend said that they would um put laxatives in their food if this was happening to them and i was like no don't do that we do not as a podcast support trying to in some way poison your food yes so we we do not support that we we do not recommend you do any of that okay now carry on with the crazy story oh my god (laughs) yeah but you can put a little bit of cinnamon in everything (laughs) (laughs) so and so, but like people do think about this, like, oh, like I would, I would, you know, like lace the food, you know, and you hear stories about this, but it is like illegal to poison your food. So if you know that somebody might be eating it, like if you poison the food or like put laxatives in it, the person that's eating it, even if they are stealing your food can come after you, like you can be sued and you can actually harm them. Yeah. Don't do that. What the hell? It's not worth it. A crappy sandwich at lunch is not worth it. (laughs) Man, I don't know why anybody would steal lunch when you could just sit at your desk all day and eat Slim Jims and drink Mountain (laughs) 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 I think that I probably, of the four of us, am the one that has come closest in terms of my experience to lunch stealing because I do remember various events at my workplaces in the past where we'd have some kind of celebration where everybody would be invited and we'd have all this food and then we'd have to end up inevitably having leftovers it was kind of uh um i don't know i don't think that's quite stealing but 
I say I was very goal oriented in getting certain things from that. <laughs> the, do you remember the episode where Josh mentioned he didn't have many friends at work? This might be the reason. Why. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lunch stealer. You took uh, all the everything bagels. I, Guy I, walks I, I, up, I takes three I... everything bagels, <laughs> takes a whole container of cream cheese, and just walks away. <laughs> oh my gosh. That sounds great. <laughs> that sounds like a very smart guy. <laughs> and he's going to go have a great breakfast. <laughs> Just don't do it, y'all. Don't steal somebody else's food. It's weird. It's weird. And uh, <laughs> this article that we'll post, again, from, like, way long ago, but it says people are now bringing lunchboxes with locks on them or buying mini fridges oh, for their gosh. desks. Um, one woman kept keeps writing um, on her brown paper bag breast milk so people don't get into it. <laughs> so, like... If we just stop it at the source of stealing people's lunch, we'll all be good. Oh, just don't. Bizarre. Yeah, just don't well, do it. Sure, if nobody committed crimes, we wouldn't have to have it. <laughs> we could just, everybody could just stop doing it. If you have somebody named Josh Leto at your office, hide your food. <laughs> I just think that, you know, if, if it's, if you need that food to survive, then it's fine. You can eat it. And I think if you want to get upset at me for eating your food, well, I'm sorry that <laughs> as a consequence of eating your food, I'm still alive. <laughs> uh, thanks for the question, Soft Beauty 2019. Um, I hope nobody's stealing your lunch. Poop on, more like poop out. Mustard shortages ravage Western Europe. <laughs> We asked Reddit if there was one condiment that you couldn't live without, what would that condiment be? If you live in France, your answer was probably mustard, because it turns out France is the place out of all the world that consumes the most mustard. Unfortunately, France is currently undergoing a mustard shortage. So I'm going to tie myself to the whipping post and volunteer that my condiment I can't live without is mayonnaise. And is there anybody else out there who agrees with me, or am I alone? Alone. It's, mayonnaise is a good choice. It is. I love mayonnaise, but I, I could live without it if I, if I had to. I try to live yeah. without okay. it. <laughs> I mean, I like mustard a lot on sandwiches, but mayonnaise is pretty versatile. But maybe sour cream is what I actually can't live without. Sour yeah, cream? Like, mm, yeah, like it, on, on nachos, it's the best. So this is going to be an unpopular choice because, A, we live in the Midwest, um, and this is the antithesis of that antithesis. Um, <laughs> but I really love blue cheese dressing, so like that as a condiment. That's like, the one? That's yeah, the one you couldn't live without? Yeah, I love it. And I, wow. Bad I, pick. Yeah. Down vote. <laughs> Sounds like we've got ourselves an edgelord. <laughs> <laughs> I love it um, so much. Very strong and remarkable flavor, I will say. You got to go in. Congratulations to your good taste. Thanks. I love it. I could live without. I think the only thing I couldn't live without is ketchup. And I am a very plain gal. But ketchup, I, I mean, when I traveled abroad, um, <laughs> all of us, we were 
part of, it was like a university program. We were um, eating ketchup in Greece and it's not the same as the US. And so we mm. went to one bar that had this ketchup that actually tasted like ketchup. And we went through like three bottles of ketchup, just our uh, little class of people. Um, and Jeez. that was when I realized, yeah, I think I need, I need ketchup. That is, that is my. How much do you tip when you eat all three bottles of ketchup? That was probably the entire <laughs> ketchup supply. We ate a lot of ketchup. <laughs> Okay, so ketchup is Lori. Yeah, the fact that you guys bring up ketchup and mayonnaise, I feel like ketchup is probably like the number one choice in the United States. Like that'd be the most devastating loss overall. Ketchup and number two is probably mayonnaise, right? Like to me, that seems like the two. The trifecta's got to include um, mustard as well, though. I don't think so. I don't think no people love. Mustard. I love mustard personally, but I just don't know that it has the ketchup and mayonnaise, you know, following. What's your favorite kind of mustard? <sighs> Have you ever had like the natural mustard? That's what does like that mean? it's got like the seeds still in it, and you can spread it with a knife. It's sure. really good. I like that. Um, I like spicy mustard. Oh, spicy mustard! Now that's a that's a that's a that's an interesting niche. What do you put the spicy mustard? Uh, you know, sandwiches, brats. I feel like I could get by without mustard or mayo. If I'm having a sandwich, I could put mustard on it. If I didn't have mustard, I could put mayo on it. I'd like to put both, but I wouldn't have to have both. Now, sour cream, what am I going to replace sour cream with? Like, if I want to have a little sour cream on some nachos, a little sour cream on top of some chili. That's true. You know, it is what do you, uh, what do you put in place of that? Like a that's yogurt. <laughs> yeah, but not. Yeah, that'd be okay. That's that's a good substitute for some things. From from the uh, Reddit thread, um, user Jester Paul posted, not a problem for me if the mustard's gone, but here in the U.S. I could see ranch dressing shortage causing a mass panic. <laughs> I feel like ranch would have the most, like, um, the loudest base of people being upset so, about yeah. it. You know yeah. how ranch people are. Yeah, like yeah. when we talked about toxic <laughs> fan base, I think it might ranch. be the ranch, <laughs> the ranch followers. Definitely the most toxic condiment fan base is for sure ranch. <laughs> oh, my God. It's got the most loyal fan base, I would say. And uh, two other comments in the Reddit thread, speaking of mustard, were um, two comments about Grey Poupon. And one of them from user N4BQ mentioned an old commercial about Grey Poupon. And in this commercial, one guy in a limousine lets another guy in a limousine borrow his Grey Poupon. Then he drives off with it. And they proceed to have at least a minute-long car chase battle scene <laughs> over some mustard, which kind of relates back nicely to this mustard shortage because, you know, you're fighting over the mustard that's left. There are, I think for me, I didn't realize how much, how many different types of mustard there are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll let Josh share when I learned about how many different mustards there were. Josh, when did Lori learn about how many different types of mustard there were? We went to a mustard museum in Middleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> mustard museum you can find in Middleton, Wisconsin on Google. You can find it, and you can also order yourself a nice mustard six-pack for forty-nine ninety-five. Wow. Get the staff's best selections of mustard delivered right to your door. Wow, some kind of good shop for mustard online today. <laughs> I was I was shook. There were like a hundred and some plus different mustards, and you could go in, and we. A hundred and some. There, there was apparent. My, my imagination 
seems to remember <laughs> my my recollection is in the thousands. Uh, there were a lot there of mustard. Th- I went in. I went in the. I went in the mustard room, and I, there were <laughs> mustards as far as a man could see. Uh, and you can taste them. And I am the height of an. I'm an above average height of an average man. So as far as a man could see. It was mustard everywhere. <laughs> that you can go in and you can taste all the different types of mustards, and it was pretty cool. There's a great picture of Josh standing next to a giant mustard um, mascot. It was a great day. Nice. Interesting. Yeah. So I have some fun facts about mustard. Do you want to? Yeah, hear I want to hear the fun facts about mustard. Okay. So um, the mustard seeds are in the brassica family so the plants they're broccoli they are oh my god so brassica um is like a a family of plants that include broccoli and brussels sprouts and cabbage and a whole bunch of things um but like most of the mustard seeds that we use in cooking today are in that same family um and so what i learned um i i knew nothing about mustards previously but i thought this was really interesting but there's kind of like three categories of mustards um mustard seeds like you get the yellow slash white mustard seeds um brown and black mustard seeds and they all come from different regions of the world and they're consumed in different places like in the u.s like that your traditional like yellow mustard um, is usually made with like yellow or white mustard seeds um those originate according to my sources from the mediterranean region of the world brown mustard seeds are like widely consumed like in like whole seed mustards and like uh in europe and in asia especially like indian cuisine uses brown mustard seeds and then black mustard seeds originated in the middle east and they're consumed there and in asia minor um and so each one of these different seeds has different amounts of the mustard flavor and like the strength of it and that like mustard quality that like spiciness and that mustard flavor is attributed to a chemical called um isothiocyanates um and so this same chemical compound is found in mustard horseradish and wasabi and so you get like similar like flavor profiles with like whole grain mustards it's and that everything. spiciness it is yeah. it's that spiciness and so yellow mustard seeds or, or white mustard seeds have the lowest amount of these types of compounds and then brown and black have more so they're spicier so you get different types that's crazy um and i also have to correct myself josh was right there was like six thousand different types of mustard <laughs> not a hundred <laughs> at the mustard museum Wow. That is all the questions we have for this week. Uh, thanks to Josh for his wonderful question about mustard and the low supply in France. And I, I am very sorry that they're running out of mustard. I also love mustard. If you'd like to see questions discussed on the show or share the best questions you find on Reddit with us, um, you can do that on our subreddit, r slash pod. Um, you can follow us on Twitter at NOSA underscore podcast. Um, If you like the show, please give us five stars on your podcast app of choice. Um, Subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts, and we'll see you next time. Bye, all. As it says in the Bible, you need only a faith of a mustard seed to follow this podcast.